F. Scott Fitzgerald was genius. Yes, this is kind of obvious. He was one of the greatest American writers who ever lived. His work heavily influenced future generations of authors, and The Great Gatsby is required reading everywhere for good reason. But I don't mean he was a literary genius. I recently found out that F. Scott Fitzgerald was, in fact, a football genius. So much so that right here in Princeton, in the early days of the sport, it's possible that F. Scott Fitzgerald had an idea that literally changed the game forever. It's forgotten history. note before we begin, I mispronounced the name of a very famous football coach in this episode a few times. We do correct it eventually, so please don't be mad at me. Thanks. I'm Dickon Hyatt, and my co-host is Joe, Joe, Man- Joe Mansky. Yep. How are you? Stepped on you there. It's all right. And our guest today is Laura Carney. She is a magazine writer and copy editor who was a copy editor at Hearst for seven years. And what brings her here today is a project that she's been working on for several years, and maybe, Laura, you could tell us what that is. Sure. For about two years now, I've been attempting to check off my late father's bucket list, which he wrote it uh, the year I was born, and back then no one even really knew the term bucket list yet, so it was really kind of just like a list of his life goals. Um, And my brother actually discovered it when he moved into a new house two years ago, And at the time, I had been an activist for a couple years because the way my father passed away was um, because of a distracted driver who was on her phone. And this happened when I was 25. So, you know, essentially I went about 10 years not really understanding that the phone had any involvement in it Mm -hmm. and thinking this was just this fluke thing. And, you know, my experience in my 20s was a little bit bit disillusioned Mm -hmm. because I kind of felt that's the time when you're supposed to feel invincible and... You have the world at your feet, and instead I kind of grew up overnight. So at the time, I really committed to journalism in a new way because I thought, well, maybe I can write about this someday. And then after I'd been at Good Housekeeping for seven years, or I think it actually was about five years at that time, my brother found this list, and I'd been trying to write a book about my dad and his life because he was really this larger-than-life kind of figure. And I'd kind of been struggling with it because... You know, when you are a distracted driving advocate or awareness advocate, they kind of teach you about what you need to educate people on. And I often felt like I was talking about, like, the tragic way he died as opposed to the way he lived. Mm -hmm. And my sense was if there were a story about the way someone lived, that message could come across intrinsically. Because really no one, I don't know, people respond to PSAs, but they also really respond to stories. So my brother found this list. And my husband, we had this weird like ESP moment where I was thinking this is my book and my husband was saying this is your book, like you have Mm -hmm. to do this. But it seemed daunting to say the least because there were 54 items on it and I gave myself four years to do it. And the reason I did that was because the first item said, I hope to live a long, healthy life to the year 2020. Hmm. So I thought, well, that's when he thought (laughs) 
it should expire, so that's when it should expire. So, so I'm about two years in now, 26 items done, 26 to go. <laughs> so it's been an adventure, to say the least. And the reason that we are talking about F. Scott Fitzgerald is because he kind of kept popping up in your, in your list, right? That's how you came to research him? You, yeah. you came across these coincidences, these parallels between you and him and, and the things you were doing. One of the things that's been happening since I started this project is my approach to my life has become a little different because I'm always thinking about what I have to do next and my calendar looks crazy. And I'm also always aware of certain patterns and things because I'm thinking like a writer all the time. Like, how am I going to write about this story? Yeah, and there's just been this very strange pattern that keeps popping up in that the places I go and the things I do, every time I research them, he shows up. Can you give a few examples of list items that ended up involving F. Scott Fitzgerald? Sure. So the first one I did was run 10 miles straight. And I had already been a marathon runner. I ran the New York Marathon. And essentially my decision to run the L.A. Marathon was because when Trump won, I was disappointed. And I thought, I can't just be like upset about this. I'm going to be positive about it. I'm going to turn this into something positive. So I decided I'm going to run the LA Marathon and raise money for this thing called Girls on the Run. So at the time, we found the list 11 days later after I made that decision, and my best friend who lives in California said, you're going to run 10 miles straight and then try to do the 16 after that, like run and walk the 16. And she's like, that's crazy. And she wasn't even really a runner, but we found out you could do it relay. So she's like, I'll just do it with you, which was incredible. So she ran the first half of it. And what ended up happening was halfway through where I was supposed to start was this place, like historically speaking, called the Garden of Allah. And it was this hotel that Fitzgerald had stayed in that was really big in the 20s. And like a lot of famous writers and actors stayed there. It was really just this very free-spirited, debaucherous place. Hemingway, Errol Flynn, Humphrey Bogart, like just all of the famous people from that time stayed there. So I became really kind of infatuated with this place and like learning more about it. And that was kind of just the beginning mm -hmm. for me. And then right after I did that one, I did successfully finish 10 miles straight, but the 12 minute pace was very slow, but I did do it. And right after that one, I did swim the width of a river. And I just kind of randomly decided to do it in North Carolina because it, like I was headed down there anyway for my nephew's high school graduation because they lived down there and we decided to stay in a hotel that was historic called the Grove Park because I'd learned about the Garden of Allah and I was thinking oh we should try to stay in historic places when we travel because they might be good for the story and I was interested in it because I had watched Ken Burns's documentary about the national parks and he had talked about this photographer named George Massa had lived there in Horace Kephart. They would survey the Smoky Mountains and they were a big part of that becoming a park. And we go there, and then I find out, okay, Fitzgerald stayed there too. Like, he stayed there later in life when Zelda was staying in Highland Hospital. And it was because it was nearby. And this was actually where his writing well had dried up. And he had had so much success in the 20s, but by this point, he was worried it wasn't going to come back. Hmm. Well, let's give a quick bio of F. Scott Fitzgerald. He was born in... 1896 in Minnesota and uh, he wasn't really from a wealthy family it was kind of I think middle class to lower middle class but he did have famous ancestors on his dad's side um, his one of his ancestors was Francis Scott Key who were the Star Spangled Banner so you really can't get much more American than that and that's who he was named after actually that's what like the hmm. 
the F. Scott comes from. Okay. His parents shipped him off to New Jersey, so that's where he really starts getting this New Jersey connection when he was a kid, and he went to high school, um, like a boarding school. I think it's called Newman School. I don't know if that still exists. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it still exists, but that's the school he went to. Yeah. Is it near here? My research, quick and dirty, said it was in Hack Hackensack, <laughs> uh, which is pretty far north. Oh, okay. Like, that's yeah. the one thing about him I don't know is where his boarding school was. <laughs> At this point, it's become a little, a little crazy. But So he went to high school, and that was when he started getting invested in football, which, you know, at that time was normal. Like, it was normal that a kid his age would have loved football because, as it turns out, I'm sure other people know this, I didn't when I started this project because despite my dad being super into sports, I would just, like, not listen when he would tell me that stuff <laughs> when I was a kid. Like, it would, he'd say, oh, it goes in one ear, out the other. At that time, football was huge. I mean, like, baseball was the American pastime, but I think part of why especially young guys love football was because it was so dangerous. Yeah, it was really brutal back then. People died. Yeah. I mean, people were literally dying at college campuses, and, like, Roosevelt almost had to, like, outlaw it. Because their protective, I'm making air quotes, helmets were, <laughs> were made out of leather. Yeah. Well, very... yeah, I mean, that's not helpful. And also, like... The rules of the game. It, yes. it was more... It wasn't... There was no aerial passing. It was just, let's just, like, crash into each other and, like, just rip each other to shreds, pretty much, right? You know, when I was learning about football... I found out it actually was obviously based on rugby, which started in the mm -hmm. UK. And when it first was being played, it, I mean, they traced it all the way back to the Middle Ages. And they called it, like, mob-based at the time. <laughs> so apparently when this game, or, you know, it's the earliest iterations of this game started, or the origins, I should say, it was like any number of people could play. <laughs> it was like a free-for-all. Like, they were just playing through the streets and past, like, the idea was just get the ball to the other end zone, and it, you know, it didn't matter what it took to get there. And the end zone would be, like, in another town, right? Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. good, yeah, you know this. Are you a big football fan? I, I love football, yeah. Oh, I didn't know I'm, that. I don't know as much about the history as you do, but I, I well, do. Well, there's, there's no good reason for me to know as much about the history. <laughs> You know, other than, you know, there's something, I think there's something interesting to learn about American culture from it, though. I mean, like, for example, President Trump and, and basically so many other presidents played football. I mean, that's interesting, I think, in itself, in that I don't think people think about it sometimes how much strategy is involved in the game. They think mm -hmm. about, like, the tacklers and the brute force of it, but it's really a very, you have to be smart. Yeah. in some ways to play this, or at least strategic. In uh, Fitzgerald's day, it was mainly an Ivy League thing, right? Like, the best football right. teams were the Ivy League teams. Very yeah. different from today, but that's kind of where Princeton comes into it, right? Right, yeah. So he, I read that part of why he chose to go to Princeton, I mean, I think he always wanted to go to an Ivy League school. Like, you know, most of his protagonists and his stories go to one Ivy League school or another. That was very important to him. Um, but he watched a game that Princeton was in, and they, they had this, like, tremendous victory at the end, like a last-minute victory, and mm -hmm. that was really what sealed the deal for him. And so he went to Princeton, and he, he really wanted to be this football star. And, and you know, when I think about it, it kind of makes sense that it didn't work out because he was, like, 5'7 and, like, 130 pounds or something. <laughs> and, you know, despite being on his high school team, that didn't really work so well for him at Princeton. So, But I also think it's kind of interesting that it didn't work out because had it worked out, we wouldn't have this great American writer. Oh, right. <laughs> because he was so dejected. Like, this was, like, the biggest failure of his life, that he couldn't be on this team. And then he joined, like, a literary journal, and then he joined, like, the newspaper and, and a humor magazine, and he just starts publishing these stories, oftentimes about 
guys who couldn't play football, <laughs> you know, or, or we're football heroes. And You're right where you know. I, I, I just think it really shaped his ideas about, or his path, I should say, as a writer. But he never did give up his obsession with football. And I think a lot of people don't know about that. Right. When they so, think of F. Scott Fitzgerald, they do not think of football. That, to me, was the thing that freaked me out the most with, <laughs> with as much as I'm accidentally chasing him on my own journey. He is... One of the items on my dad's list was go to the Rose Bowl, and I was a little nervous about that one just because, you know, like I said, I didn't really have any interest in football growing up. And we went out to the Rose Bowl game, I believe it was, I guess it was 2018, New Year's Day. It was Georgia versus Oklahoma. And as I was researching the Rose Bowl, I discovered that, as I mentioned earlier, Fitzgerald had lived in L.A. towards the end of his life, and he was trying to be a screenwriter. He had a contract with MGM. And he actually died like 11 days before the Rose Bowl. And he died reading a newspaper about the Princeton team. And he like wrote in the margin, great prose. Wow, that was his last writing, was it? Right, but I mean, it wasn't even just the way he died that Uh was involved with football. Like, it turns out he was following football, Princeton football, avidly his entire life. And some people have actually called him like the first true football fan. Hmm. Because most people don't know about this because they think of him as this gentleman and and this 20s guy who's into, like, you know, boozing and and writing about luxury and women. But the whole time, it turns out, he has been calling the Princeton coach the night before every home game. And, you know, he was quoted as saying later in an interview, it would be between, like, midnight and 6 a.m. He would get a call from Fitzgerald you know, from Chicago, from Miami, from Hollywood, from New York, telling him what he thought he should do and the this, next day. <laughs> it, to be clear, this coach was Fritz Chrysler, who yes. was a founding father of football. Like, he created the modern game, pretty much. Yes. Or helped create the modern game. He would be on the phone with Fritz Chrysler, and there would be, like, the sounds of parties in the background. Yeah, and, it sounds very Gatsby-esque, uh-huh. right? Like, like, he was living out the character's life in a way and and he he's I think the way he described it he did an interview with someone I think it was in the early 60s who this was when it first came out and the way he described it was I think that that Fitzgerald just like had this intense passion for what he was describing that he had never heard in anybody else and you know he was known I think as the father of the call it the two the offense and defense double yeah two, two squads but um, we will talk more about that when we come back. But right now we'll take a quick break. Then we'll talk about what may have been F. Scott Fitzgerald's gift to football. few show notes here. I wanted to thank everyone for listening. Last episode, I said that we had gotten up to a thousand listens, and since then, we've gotten nearly a thousand more. So obviously, a lot more people are listening to the show, which is great, which is really gratifying. And just as usual, if you like the show and want to support it, please go on iTunes and leave a five-star review. And we got a new review from Josh, and Josh says... I just moved to the area, and it's awesome to find out about the place I live through a podcast. I'm ready for more episodes. 
Well, thanks for listening, Josh. And um, if you write a review, we might read it, unless it's one star, and then we'll uh, pretend it doesn't exist. I think he was at Michigan when he yeah. gave the interview. 1956 was when it was given. So this is what he said to the reporter, who actually didn't know much about football at all, so he didn't even think to really delve too deep into this. But he said, uh, It wasn't just a matter of the habitual old grad spirit and enthusiasm. There was something beyond comprehension in the intensity of his feelings. Listening to him unload his soul as many times as I did, I finally came to the conclusion that what Scott felt was really an unusual, a consuming devotion for the Princeton football team. I mean, I just, I just thought that was really incredible because, you know, this wasn't like a passion he was making money off of. Mm-hmm. Like, this wasn't like his career. This was just something he just truly cared about. Yeah, he called, bef- called the coach before the games with these ideas. And some of them were good and some of them were not. But he had a really important one. Right, and, and you know, this it's not like this coach was the only person who cited saying uh-huh. that this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there was another person, another coach at Princeton, who had also heard him talk about this. He's, his name was Bushnell, and he said that what Fitzgerald had said was Princeton must have two teams. This was in the Wall Street Journal. Um, one will be big, all men over 200 pounds. This team will be used to batter them down and wear them out. Then the little team, the pony team, will go in and make the touchdowns. And, you know, in retrospect, at the time that he suggested it, they said no one really would have listened to that because it was kind of like unheard of that you would take your best player out of the game. But I yeah. think actually maybe part of why Fitzgerald would have been suggesting this is because like he would have been on the pony team, you know? Huh. <laughs> like he would have been <laughs> that true. little guy. Oh yeah, that's a good point. And this is one unique thing about football. I don't think any other sport has this. Joe, do you know of any other sport where the offense and defense are completely different teams? Like, they may as well not even... There's no reason for them to even talk to each other. They're just completely different teams of people. No, I mean, and even... I mean, football is... American football is very unusual for the, the free substitution. Like, most pro sports or college sports, you're you're in or you're out. Some have adopted free substitution because of American football, I guess, kind of being the first. But the original, the original games, you were in until you were out, and then you were out for good. Baseball has a pitcher who's a very specialized, that's a very specialized role, but I don't think any other uh, sport that I can think of has two platoons. What about hockey, ice hockey? I mean, except for, well, there's the goalie, but otherwise they're on the, like any player could make an offensive play or a defensive play. Right, that's true. And they're on the field at the same time. Yeah, that's true. By the way, it's Chrysler. I just wanted to make oh, that. Oh, Chrysler. Oh, yeah, just set that up for you. It's spelled differently from how yeah. we're used to Chrysler. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> all, the, all the real football fans are going to be <laughs> we have a Princeton. Thank you, Joe. We have a Princeton alum on the staff who would probably okay. notice that, so I just wanted to get that one out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he had a lot of football ideas, and this one was clearly his best one. If it happens the way it was described in this article, and I don't see any reason to doubt it, uh, it seems pretty well supported by evidence that he actually did this. Which is funny to think that you know one of the core aspects of football came from this this writer that is not particularly well known for football. 
you have to wonder if maybe sports writing had a huge influence on uh-huh. him too. I mean, like, so this was the paragraph that he had written "Good Prose" next to, you know, his la- literally his last words were "Good Prose," which mm-hmm. is fascinating in itself. And you know, apparently he was also like eating a chocolate bar and just died of a heart attack. It was in uh, the like a Princeton newspaper, college newspaper, and it said, "Face with such men as Reagan, a pen player." Erica of Dartmouth, Willoughby of Yale, or Mazer of Army. A player has his work cut out for him. The first prerequisite of a good tackler is his desire to tackle. You must want to tackle. After that, it is a matter of training and the ability to think quickly and act quickly. I mean, I think a lot of his writing is fairly active. I mean, it is it's kind of like a uniquely American voice, you know, because his paragraphs, it's not hard to read Fitzgerald. Like, it's kind of like a it kind of flows rather quickly. It's yeah. not like he's using gigantic words, but mm-hmm. he does have this incredible way of, of using these very active descriptions at times mm-hmm. that are like just very witty and very moving. Mm-hmm. So my, my first introduction to Fitzgerald you know, wasn't really The Great Gatsby. Um, I, I sort of read that in high school. I mostly read Cliff's Notes for it. Um, it just struck me as something I wasn't sure I'd be interested in. It struck me as maybe even you know, more masculine writing. I didn't really care about that much at the time. But uh, when I became an English major in college, I read his essay, The Crack Up. And that actually was the thing that really drew me to him and and probably even made me a writer because it really was, I think it could be called the first example of someone writing authentically about depression. And that was something I was dealing with at the time. And you know, he didn't expect there to be a good response to it, and it was a really brave thing for him to do. And, you know, I always thought that he had written it uh, at the Grove Park, where he was apparently doing this thing called the beer cure, because he was an alcoholic, so he was, like, drinking 30 beers a day to get off gin, and, and was really just the darkest period of his life. You know, they found him, like, passed out in the bathroom, and, you know, the crack-up is about this descent into uh, being unable to write. Uh, but it turns out he actually wrote it in Baltimore, which I only discovered in the past week. And he wrote it between stints at Johns Hopkins, which I actually stayed at just to get off of uh, antidepressants I didn't even mm. need when I was right out of college. So that was really incredible to me that like even when I was in college, I was like unconsciously after reading this essay, like following in this guy's footsteps, oh. you know, and, and really not even thinking about it, he had become this huge influence as a writer to me. Back to his football ideas, not all of his ideas were classic. Uh, so here's another quote from Chrysler. From the, this is from the quarterly review of the Michigan alumnus. He says, quote, Another time he got me out of bed in the middle of the night to unravel an elaborate fantasy he'd imagined about a Harvard-Princeton football game that was to be fought by two teams of ants. The red ants and the black ants. He'd gone into the characteristics of the two types of ants and had arranged it so that Princeton, represented by the black ants, was predetermined to win. Scott sounded at the time as if he were halfway convinced of its practicability. Oh, wow. (laughs) I I saw the thing about the ants, but I hadn't heard the whole quote about (laughs) about that. I mean, you know, I think that kind of speaks to... uh, flights of fancy that he could have had in the but, middle of the night. But maybe also he, because of his small size, was <laughs> this, this, you know, he wrote another one where he, this is a full-fledged short story in as published in Esquire in 1936 where an ant, Princeton decides to allow ants to um, become students. 
and they do very well. And especially <sighs> large ant, especially large ant joins the football team and becomes the football star. And then they, uh, when it comes time for the big Harvard game, the Harvard people are stuck up and they refuse to play against the ant. So they pull him out, and then Harvard runs up the score on Princeton, 65 to nothing. And then they decide <laughs> to send the ant in, and he saves the day, and Harvard star football player ends up running in terror from the ant and declares his uh, inferiority to the ant, and that's how the story ends. I have to guess he wouldn't have defined that as one of his artistically <laughs> superior... Story. It, it was pretty funny. <laughs> I want to look that up, though. He was funny. Yeah, and uh, he also describes ants as having eight legs. I'm not sure if he was too well, familiar with, with ants. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but may, maybe, like, on some level, he identified with, with the ants, the uh, the small guy I good at football. I think he identified <laughs> with the underdog yeah. in general. So uh-huh. much, I mean, that's the one thing I've discovered that I have found really interesting, and I have to wonder if this is part of why I've been encountering him so much, is that mm-hmm. he... He really wrote about being an underdog. I mean, it wasn't just not making the football team. It was also the fact that he joined the military and the war ended before he could even be sent overseas. Like, that was a big failure for him. Hmm. Like, I think he really, in some ways, represented this idea of what it was to be a man in his time. And people Mm -hmm. talk about Hemingway in that regard. But I think he is a really interesting example of that for his time period. Mm -hmm. And you also noticed a, a few parallels between today and the 1920s, which I thought were pretty interesting. Oh, well, because I've been trying to figure out, you know, like, what, like, why does this guy keep showing up? And why would my dad have put list items that would have also appealed to Fitzgerald? I mean, mostly the places he wanted to go. I mean, it's not just the places I've been, but, you know, next year, for my last year of the list, I'm also going to Chicago, which Fitzgerald lived in, and Miami for the Super Bowl, which... Fitzgerald would have gone crazy for um, because of course you know it didn't exist yet because college was mostly where football was being played back then and um, you know I went to New Orleans last year and he lived in New Orleans I mean he invented the term the jazz age I think there was something about Fitzgerald's life that was so uh, representative of the time he was living in and that you know he achieved you think about what age he was when he achieved success he was 25 he had just moved to New York and, you know, and there's other coincidences, too. Like, he lived in an apartment a block away from where I worked at Hearst. Mm-hmm. He even lived in Wilmington, Delaware at one point where I was born. So it's like mm-hmm. I've unconsciously been chasing this guy. But in many ways, I think his decline in the 30s, which, you know, probably had a lot to do with his alcoholism and, you know, with what Zelda was dealing with because she was uh, in several mental hospitals in that decade, it really just mirrored what was happening in the country, which I think in some ways was just, you know, the, there was the Great Depression and there was this time of kind of course correction in a way of the 20s having been this time of great excess and, you know, financial success that many people became disillusioned with. And when I think about my dad writing this list in 1978, 40 years after Fitzgerald would have been in Hollywood, that also was was sort of a time of disillusion. It was, you know, Jimmy Carter was who, by the way, I also met for the list. Um, he was the president I chose because that's uh, who was president in '78. Mm-hmm. He had the crisis of confidence speech, and and he was talking about how our country had become kind of apathetic after the very revolutionary '60s. And I mean, I almost feel like there may be a connection today between yeah. FDR, Jimmy Carter, and Obama because. 
when you look at President Obama, like what did he talk about the most but community service and helping each other out and, and being this collaborative community. And we had all these developments happening in the early 2000s with, you know, more technology allowing us to be more connected, right? And just like a faster paced life in a way. I think everybody's life kind of sped up a little mm -hmm. bit because we all wanted to have more free time. And I think what we're experiencing right now, again, is a little bit of a course correction, um, which is a little bit of disillusionment with, do mm -hmm. we really feel more connected? And that to me is kind of this fascinating, like cyclical thing that's happening every 40 years because, you know, my dad, God, I just even just now figured this out. like. <laughs> Much like Fitzgerald was very much a product of his times, my dad also was a product of his times. Like, it would have made sense for a man in 78 to think, oh, here's all these awesome things I want to do with my life because the 70s were conducive to leisure time, mm -hmm. right? Like, wanting to do fun things with your life, which was totally rebelling against his parents because they would have said, no, you need to be serious and have a family and, you know, send your kids to college. And you know, it makes complete sense then that my father would have died because of someone on their phone mm -hmm. at a traffic light yeah. because, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times he used to say, you know, you're living in the age of information. Like, he was the first person I, know, I knew who had a cell phone. Mm -hmm. Like, he loved technology. He thought it was incredible. In that sense, I guess there is a connection, and he also was a writer, but and he loved football. But I do think it's important, especially now, for us to look back at these things because I think the past does repeat itself. I think because of the constant presence of the internet in our lives, we tend to like think everything is new mm -hmm. all the time and we think every problem we have is new when in reality, if we looked back, we could see there was another iteration of this. Mm -hmm. Laura, where can people go if they want to find out more information about your work or if they want updates on your book? So my website is myfatherslist.com, mm -hmm. and uh, my Instagram is at myfatherslist. All right, Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks. Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service, recorded in beautiful Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Barandon. Thank you for listening. So the main podcast is over, but remember how CDs used to have secret tracks on them that would play after the last song? Well, this is the secret track of this podcast. I'm going to read that short story you mentioned. Throughout his career, Fitzgerald wrote short stories to pay the bills, and this is one of them. First published in Esquire magazine in 1936, here is The Ants at Princeton. Sufficient time having elapsed, it is now possible to tell the facts about a case concerning which little is known but about which the wildest speculations have been made. As a Princeton man and a friend of certain university officials, the present author is in a position to know the true story, from its beginning at a faculty meeting to its nigh-tragic ending at an intercollegiate football game. One detail will forever elude me. 
Which member of the faculty first conceived the idea of admitting ants as students to the university? The reasons given, I remember, were that the insects, by their highly complicated organizing power, their discipline, and above all, their industry, would set an example to the other students. In any event, the experiment was inaugurated one autumn under what seemed to be the best of auspices. It was possible, through the efforts of Professor Blank of the Bacteriological Department, and through the generosity of Mr. Blank of the Board of Trustees, to find a number of ants suitable to the experiment. And, so tactfully was it managed, that many of the students were totally unaware of the presence of their new classmates, and, but for a certain incident which forms the basis of this story, might have remained so all through college. Some of the ants, because of their diminutive stature, found difficulty in keeping up with their fellow students, and these were reluctantly dropped at mid-year examinations. The majority of them did well, however, and all progressed favorably through the year, in spite of a growing inferiority complex among them. This complex was strongest in an especially large, well-developed ant in whom the conviction gradually grew that it was his destiny to justify his people and their abilities before the rest of the student body. As I say, his stature approached that of a man, and it was natural that his ambition should take the form of making himself a berth on the varsity football team. This was not so difficult, for during the previous year, the team had been disorganized. It was between regimes, so to speak, and Fritz Chrysler had been called east from the University of Minnesota to take the reins. One of Mr. Chrysler's first acts in assuming control was to ask for full independence in molding a newer and better team, and the first matter that came up in this connection naturally centered about the ant. For the ant, by this time, was playing running guard on the second varsity, and to older alumni it seemed almost a disgrace that a team which had, in other days, contained such legendary heroes as Hillebrand, Biffy Lee, Big Bill Edwards, and the Pose should have an ant on it, no matter what his personal character or ability. But Chrysler was firm. At Minnesota, he would say, we have no racial discriminations on our teams, except, of course, against Scandinavians. So as spring practice turned to fall practice, the older alumni became resigned to the situation, and meanwhile the ant was moved up to the first varsity, in which he became an important cog because of his versatility playing secondary defense on the offense and secondary offense on the defense. By the beginning of the season, the coaches were beginning to think of him as a potential All-American. He was big and rugged, and the dazzling way in which he twisted through the line on all fours, as well as his confusing ability to carry the ball under any of his eight arms, seemed to inaugurate a new era in American football. The whole offense was gradually built about him. Every old Princetonian will remember that season, how in turn Cornell, Pennsylvania, Dartmouth, Columbia, and Yale, and the two breathers, as the easy games were called, the Lawrenceville Seconds and the New Jersey School for Drug Addicts, fell before the onslaught of the tiger, or rather, of the ant, for it was to him that the sports writers gave full credit. When his head was torn off in the Yale game, there was dismay on the campus, and a sigh of relief went over the undergraduate body when it was once more fixed in place. Only one obstacle lay in the way of a victorious season and a sure trip to the Rose Bowl. The last game that year was with Harvard, and the captain of the Crimson, Cabot Saltonville, who also played running guard, declared that he would rather cancel the game than play against an ant. I do not think it necessary to give any reasons, he declared to an eager press, but I assure you on my word as an old Groton man, it is not a question of fear. 
The battle raged in the newspapers and on the two campuses. The, the Princetonians naturally saw in it a disingenuous desire to get rid of their star player. The claim was made that a Maeterlinck had written about the ants, but only an Adams had written about the Bostonians. The Cambridgians stood almost unanimously behind their captain and broke up a radical meeting which considered the matter an aspect of the class war. In the end, Princeton yielded. The ant would sit on the sidelines. Saltonville had won. As the game progressed, the result was as prophesied. Without their quintuple threat, the Princeton team was paralyzed. Steadily, the score mounted: seven to nothing, fourteen to nothing, fifty to nothing, sixty-five to nothing. While the cheering from the Tiger stands gradually took on the semblance of a groan. Finally, someone, legend describes it to a freshman, started a sing-song slogan: "We want anti." We want anti. Those nearby took it up, and finally the whole orange and black section were chanting it. We want anti. It was here that Captain Saltonville of Harvard made his great mistake. There were only ten minutes to play, and in the overwhelming confidence engendered by the score, he was moved to one of those gestures of chivalry inherited from a long line of New England ancestors. He called time out and shouted to the Princeton sidelines, "Send in that insect." They sent him in. He was in civilian clothes, for he had not expected to play. But before ten seconds had passed, that seemed to make no difference. For once he was on the field, a new spirit possessed the Princeton players. They swung into their old formations, and with the ant leading, the tandems rushed down the field. Chrysler, as has been said, had built an offense around him that had carried them through an undefeated season. As Ante bucked, tackled, spun, reversed, kicked, and passed, hundreds of other smaller ants, making their way cautiously through the grass, swarmed over the Harvard players, and at each starting signal nipped them with such vehemence as to completely destroy their charge, and spoil any vestige of an offense. Some of them, by penetrating the players' nether garments, gave rise to a famous phrase, which would be indelicate to set down here. Captain Saltonville, his face black with ants, so that he could scarcely see. Cursed his generosity, but still he saw the score roll up: six to sixty-five, twenty-five to sixty-five, fifty-five to sixty-five, sixty-four to sixty-five, until Princeton was ahead at last. Then he decided on a desperate measure: he would get Anti. He would violate all the traditions of his family and play dirty. The signal was given, and in he rushed. Bim went his fist under the scrimmage. Bim, bam, bim. Something warned him, even at that moment, that he was being rash. And presently, the huge throng was treated to a strange sight. Out of the pile burst Captain Saltonville, running at full speed, and after him, with a ferocious light in his beady eyes, came the ant. Past his own goalposts ran the Cambridgian. Then, with a glance behind and a terrified cry, up he went over the barrier into the stands. Up the aisle he climbed, with the ant always behind him. Terrified, the crowd watched, knowing that eventually Captain Saltonville would reach the top of the stadium with no alternative to a fifty-foot leap to the ground. The stricken Massachusetts reached the press box and paused, white with anguish. Nearer and nearer came the ant, impeded only a little by the efforts of Harvard men to head him off. And then another anonymous figure walked into the story. It was a young, resourceful sports writer. "If you will give a proper statement to the press," he said, "I think I can calm him down." Anything," cried Saltonville. Carefully, the reporter dictated, 
and Saltonville repeated after him into the mic, his blood quivering with shame at the words, This anim... I mean, my honorable opponent is superior to me in industry, character, and courage. He hurried on, for his adversary was within hearing. He is a gentleman and a sportsman, and I am proud to have encountered him, even in defeat. The ant heard him and stopped. Flattery is sweet, and his fighting nature was mollified. The pressman spoke for him. Do you mean that, Captain Saltonville? he asked. Of course I do, faltered the son of John Harvard. That's why I hurried up to the press box. I couldn't keep back the truth any longer. And that is the true story of the ants at Princeton. That they became a nuisance and had to be exterminated the following spring does not detract from the credit of their achievement. The extermination order did not, of course, apply to Ante. You can see him any day now if you are curious, for he is specialized in the future of his own people and holds down with credit the Harkness Chair of Insectology at Yale and in his spare time coaches the team. And Captain Saltonville is still remembered as one of the fastest running guards the Crimson ever knew.